When it comes to medical dramas, we'll often think about Grey's Anatomy, ER or even House. What's missing from these dramas is the perspective of the female registrar or the female doctor and the truth behind a medical system that truly needs an overhaul. I'm Ali Hill, psychologist and founder of Pragmatic Thinking, a behaviour and motivation strategy company. Welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to discovering what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness. Dr. Neela Janakiramana is a reconstructive plastic surgeon with expertise in complex hand and wrist surgery. She's a seasoned public speaker and advocate on issues including health equity, gender equity, diversity and inclusion. Neela is a regular contributor to the Women's Agenda and is also written for The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, The Saturday Paper and often appears in the ABC's The Drum. Outside of seeing patients, Dr Neela has turned her hand to fiction writing. Her latest book is called The Registrar and it offers a rare insight into the world of a surgeon in the making from one who has survived it. In this conversation, Dr Neela shares why she decided to write a novel as opposed to a memoir. She talks a lot about her advocacy work and the truth behind a medical system and what it is like for female registrars and female doctors. Uh, Some of this which can be quite confronting. So just as a word of warning, there is conversations here in this conversation around sexual harassment uh, and sexual abuse. So just be mindful as you're listening to this conversation. Soak up the new perspectives and the lived experiences shared by this deep thinking advocate, Dr. Neela Janakuramana. Neela, look, it's lovely to be sitting down with you. For many of us, we carry many different titles, uh, titles that might be reliant on that question of who are you. One of your titles is a reconstructive plastic surgeon. Talk to me a little bit about what was your pathway into becoming a plastic surgeon? So uh, surgeons are doctors. So I went to medical school. So I finished high school and I decided I wanted to study medicine and I was lucky enough to get in. So I did an undergraduate degree. So straight out of high school. Um, I did a six year degree. Uh, Nowadays, they tend to be closer towards five years. And once I'd finished that, I started working in the hospital system. And once you're in hospitals, uh, there is a bit of a hierarchy to climb. Your first year is called an intern year where you always practice under direct supervision. Uh, and then you get what's called your general registration. And at that point, that's when people start to specialize. So you can stay within the hospital system uh, and start to be streamed towards, broadly speaking, um, either medical or surgical type specialties. Uh, Or you can uh, leave the hospital system um, and go and work in community medicine, things like general practice. And of course, there are other specialties as well, you know, emergency medicine and obstetrics. Um, So they all come into that hospital-based training. I decided in medical school that I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, It probably wasn't the first thing I landed upon, but as I went through, perhaps I'm just a very impatient person. And what surgery offered to me was the opportunity to see a problem and fix it. Uh, And I found that quite appealing. 
And so as I went through, one of the things I really enjoyed was orthopedic surgery, so restoring people's function. And within that, uh, what I really enjoyed was upper limb surgery, so hand and wrist uh, and restoring people's dexterity. In Victoria, which is where I live and trained, most of that surgery is done by plastic surgeons. And so that was how I ended up within the plastic surgical field. Really interesting around that, even that reflection on the trait of being fairly mm. impatient. If I can find a solution, we can get it fixed. And the the functionality uh, that is required mm. in our upper limbs, in our kind of use of hands and that pull towards that. Going back a little further, if it wasn't medicine, was there something else on your radar that you might have mm. gone down a path of? Yeah, I actually had in my list of preferences, I had medicine at Monash University, medicine at Melbourne University, and then journalism. And my careers counsellor had an absolute conniption about that because she said, one of these things is not like the others. Uh, and below that, I had various other science-based degrees. But I have always enjoyed writing. I did a lot of it when I was in school, particularly high school. And the conversation I had with her at the time was, if I can't do medicine, I didn't actually want to be a scientist. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit more creative. And so I sat the entrance exam for journalism at RMIT back in the day, uh, but I'll never know if I did well in, in it or not because I did get into medicine, which was ranked higher. Interesting how, and again, it's part of the the dichotomy we have in society at the moment of science versus creativity or versus mm. art and and it's not mm. unusual for us to feel like that they are, you know, never the twain will meet uh, in terms of those two. Talk to me mm. about where is the, not just writing, and we'll get to that in a moment, your expression of words and writing, mm. but I imagine there is similar crossover in creativity when it comes to practising mm. medicine and the work that you do. How is that expressed? Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is one of the great myths of uh, of the medical arts. It, it is very much an art. People aren't simply organs or limbs um, attached to a body. They are a living whole person. And you can have even very common medical conditions that if you line up 100 people with the same thing, each will want different treatment. Each will have different treatment goals. Each will want something a little bit different out of their lives. And I think we've really seen that in the pandemic where we have seen science as a concept valorized. But even as lay people, you know, you can look at politicians, public health officials, various commentators stand up and say, you know, in a very hardline sort of way, X, Y, Z must be done because that is what the science says. And then people disagree with each other and that causes confusion because how can science disagree? And then people make different decisions. Even at the moment, if we look out the window, there are people who are fastidious about wearing masks and some people who aren't wearing masks at all. And it would be simple to point at the people not wearing masks and say, oh, they must have missed the health message. They mustn't know the science because if they knew the science, they would do it. But actually, it's that people interpret it in different ways and prioritise different things ahead of other things. And 
that is where the art of medicine comes in, um, particularly clinical medicine where we have a single person sitting in front of us. We're not trying to make plans and goals for populations. We're dealing with a single person. So it is really about understanding their story, where they're going, where they've come from and what they want out of this particular treatment experience. And in that sense, it's not so different to storytelling and reading. Understanding the context for the period of time that mm. you're sitting with someone, uh, I really love that that mm. sense of the art of the art of me- uh, medicine as mm. you describe it. One of the other titles that you've had that you have is author, and you've just released mm. a, a novel mm. called The Registrar. And shortly, I'd love to come to that novel and talk a little bit about the story and the book. Um, and you touched on before that journalism was one of the other things that you were pulled towards. Where did your expression of writing come from? Um, Like I said, writing in and of itself is something that I did a very long time ago. I think more broadly, if we take a step back, even though I had a long break in my writing career, I've never really had a break in my storytelling career because we genuinely do listen to stories, understand stories and tell stories in the practice of medicine. Um, so when I then came back to writing, uh, many years later, uh, it was that, that art and craft of storytelling that I really leaned upon. Um, the writing of course is its own craft. I had to learn to do it in the same way that I had to learn to operate. Um, it's not, you know, I'd love to say that this novel just spilled out of me in its completed form and required no work at all. But that's, of course, you know, all authors will say that's <laughs> just not, that's divine intervention. <laughs> yes, that's it. You know, the magical publishing fairy came down and, you know, turned turned my thoughts into a beautiful book with a perfect cover. Um, no, it was that part was a lot of hard work. But um, but the storytelling is what I what I kept coming back to when I was writing the novel. Practically, what was your Mm. process in writing? So without the fairy, (laughs) what helped you to 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 learn the art, to to sit with the craft, to sit in the in Mm. the mess, to sit in the wrong words to get to the right words? So yeah, the first draft was very much written in anger and frustration. Uh, And then I actually sat down and started to think about the story I actually wanted to tell. Um and I really reflected on, at that point, the reasons why I wanted to write this story. There were a couple of motivations. The first was I was really frustrated that the stories of women in healthcare weren't being told. Um, There are lots of TV shows. There's not actually very much literature about hospitals or healthcare. But what little there is is always told from a very male perspective. And that was something that I found frustrating And I looked at my female medical students, my female trainees, and I wondered, you know, what is the legacy that we're giving them? Are we we giving female clinicians a voice? Are we giving female patients a voice? And by no means am I suggesting that I am the authoritative voice for women in medicine, but it was just to start that process of contributing to that that aspect of storytelling. But the the real precipitant for the story was I found out that a colleague had died. 
And it was someone that I had worked very closely with, um, but I had lost touch with as the years had gone by. And it was someone that I met um, at a very transitional phase of both of our careers. And we had shared a lot of stories about our training years. And um, I only learned about her death some years after it happened, but it really had quite a profound impact. And I sat down and I started that first draft that night. Um, So then when I I finished that first draft and I came back and I was reading through it, I really had to focus on where, why I had written it. And that was when I really started working on developing the characters in a way that wasn't just a montage of people I had known, but were real independent characters with different motivations and different reasons for doing things and thinking about the, their, their own arcs within the story um, and then the overall trajectory of the, the story itself. The call towards shining a light on a story that we don't often hear, the female perspective mm-hmm. and that, you know, the, the place of devastation, no doubt, and grief mm-hmm. that was the impetus to, to write the book is a really mm-hmm. powerful one. If I read this, for those listening off the back of the book, you say the registrar offers a rare insight to the world of a surgeon in the making from one who has survived it. Talk mm. me through the decision to write a novel versus mm. a memoir. Mm. Um, I prefer reading fiction uh, and I think that probably had more to do with my decision-making than anything else. I've never been a huge reader of non-fiction, um, certainly popular non-fiction because, I mean, I read so much non-fiction, you know, textbooks and things and journal articles the rest of the time. Um, I, I like long-form articles, but I just don't have the patience for a full book and my apologies to all of those authors. Uh, similarly with memoir, I I don't not enjoy reading it, but I feel that um, I'm not drawn to it in the same way uh, as, as I am to fiction. I think that fiction tells these slightly more universal stories. And I think particularly when it comes to stories that critique a system, um, a reviewer this weekend called it a novel of social protest, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think that when it is written in the memoir form, it's very easy to dismiss it as the cantankerous grumblings of the one person who didn't get their own way or the one person who felt it, who found it to be difficult. And of course, that's not fair. That's not what should happen. But it is something that I have seen often happen. And so at the end of the day, I didn't want to tell my story. I'm, I'm quite happy to share aspects of that in these sorts of formats. But in my writing, you know, I, I just didn't think anyone would be interested in, you know, a year of Neela's life, you know, <laughs> if, if, if that makes sense. Um, whereas with fiction, it was, it was much more general. It wasn't about me. And it allowed me to explore lots of different characters from lots of different perspectives. Whereas I think with memoir, there is always that singular lens that um, situations and scenarios are being viewed from. The multi-layer of characters and to see different, often complexities Mm. around some of the issues that you touch on. Talk a little bit about a broken medical system. You touch on the sheer volume of time and hours almost to the point Mm. of burnout. 
in that system uh, through the voice of of Dr. Emma Swan as the the uh, protagonist in the book, and you mm. touch on sexual harassment amongst other kind of topics. So where did I guess mm. having those layers of characters? What were the stories that that allowed you to to share that might have been different if it had been a memoir? Yeah, I think. Um particularly along that sexual harassment and assault theme. Um, I, I've, and I've shared this in other places as well. I was sexually harassed and assaulted at work over, over many years by various different people. It was not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, it's not an uncommon story told by other female clinicians and, and women in lots of other industries. Um, I think that becomes very raw and personal when you share your own stories. Um, and I have nothing but respect for women who do do that in whatever form that they do. But it's also very hard to tell those stories without potentially making them identifiable. And I had made a decision many years ago for lots of reasons that I wasn't going to complain or report those people who engaged in that way. And for the most part, it's now been a very long time since the the last incident happened. And so they weren't skeletons I wanted to pull out of the closet. And they weren't, I didn't want my colleagues trying to figure out who I was referring to or pointing fingers at each other. I think somehow there's almost, now that the book's been out in the world and I've given a few talks um, for a few weeks, there's almost a bit more power in the mystery because people do know that there are aspects of it that may or may not be autobiographical. Um, And they do, you know, kind of look sideways at each other and go, oh, who's she talking about? Was this one of us? What's going on? And if that in and of itself is enough to make people... Uh, think more critically of their friends, their colleagues, their peers, uh, instead of just assume that everyone's behaving. I think that's a good thing. In hearing you talk, I think the, as you say, the the mystery allows the questions uh, and the understanding of the system that might impact on on people's individual experiences. If things were different as no doubt this is a story that's unique as you described and mentioned before it's not uncommon for that to be a story in the medical system in the healthcare system how would you like for that to be to be different what needs to change is might be a better way um i mean when we're talking about yeah, I think there's lots of issues of safety. Um, and again, it, it applies to a lot of workplaces. Um, people need to feel emotionally safe. They need to feel physically safe in any workplace. And reporting a sense of not being safe shouldn't put people's lives, careers, reputations at risk. And yet it still does. And so I think one of the things that is really important for workplaces to look into is trying to work out whether or not the workplace is a safe one in the myriad of ways that that safety can look like, Um, but also work out ways that people 
can report that they are feeling unsafe without the repercussions that that might bring. I went through all of my years of training without anyone ever asking me if the workplace was safe. And if someone had asked it in that way, uh, rather than, you know, someone harassing you, which is which is the much more blunt instrument um, that I think when we tell people you should watch out for sexual harassment, I think that's what they think they should be asking. It was a much more open-ended question and there was an opportunity for women to say, actually, no, I don't feel safe. There, there are problems within this workplace. That potentially creates a scenario where human resources, bosses, other people can very generically remind everyone of what is accepted behavior. And sometimes that in and of itself, you know, a perpetrator knowing that people are watching, knowing that um, there is that bit of oversight, maybe that might be enough to change people's behaviors. Because this isn't a lack of education, most of these things, you know, people who bully, people who harass, people who, you know, behave in sexually inappropriate ways, they're not doing it because they don't know that they shouldn't do it. There's more than enough training. People know that they shouldn't do it. They're doing it because they think they can get away with it. And so that, I think, is what we really need to address. How do you create systems so that people don't think they can get away with it? That context of having the conversation through a lens of safety, the question of do you feel safe or mm. to, even if you're not asked the question of how can I voice a message about not feeling safe, providing mm. environments where people are believed when they're, they're told uh, or hear those stories mm. becomes really important. And you're right, it's, it's often mm. not about education, it's, it's about changing a sense of power mm. and a sense of message in amongst that environment in amongst that system and change. Mm. One of the other things that's written on the back of your your book, um, it says here that this is a, a gripping and moving novel that goes beyond the headlines to reveal a human experience to being both doctor and patient in a medical system at breaking point. This is a massive question mm. and it's often very complex because a system is complex mm. in nature what, how would you like to see things change? What could improve how medical system, both for doctors and patients? Mm. Yeah, it was really important to me to talk about the patient experience because ultimately that's why we're here. Um, if there were no patients, we would be out of work, and that would actually be a great thing. Um, I've been a patient. I am the parent of a child with a chronic disease, so being on the other side of the curtain is is a familiar experience to me. I think that what patients want is communication. Um, I think that when you go into a healthcare interaction there is a power imbalance, there is a knowledge gap. And these are not easily closed because someone who is going to do something to you or your body, even if that is just prescribing medications, fundamentally has an amount of power over you. And similarly, it, I can't 
you know, and I'm the clinician in that interaction, I can't give a patient my 15, 20 years of knowledge and experience implanted into their head. So even where we are trying to be educative and inclusive, um, there is a certain amount of medical patriarchy that is unavoidable. And so ultimately what it then becomes about is making people feel comfortable in that interaction and making them feel as if their desires, their values um, are being respected and are being heard. And fundamentally that takes time and it takes patience. And time is the one thing that we just don't have in our health system. There's not enough healthcare workers. There's not enough rooms. There's not enough spaces. There's not enough funding. There's not, you know, we could go on about all of the resources that are lacking. But if I could change anything with a magic wand, um, maybe the magic publishing fairy also has a magic, you know, healthcare wand that she carries around, um, it would be to give doctors and patients enough time together. As you were saying that, that's what's running through my mind is just the sheer tension that uh, that time creates because as you talked about, it's the it's the empathy of, of a doctor or a medical profession to sit a little longer to ask the next question but it's also the, the sense of power is the word that's coming to mind of a patient to to ask the next question, why this medication? What's your thinking behind this? Mm. And then what? What else should I could I be doing or be looking at? Uh, that often we feel like, or yeah. when I say we, but patients may feel like that they don't have the time mm. for. How have you navigated? How do you navigate that in your time with with your patients? Um, I'd love to say that I practice slow medicine and I do it perfectly all the time, but I don't. Um, you you do it by, um, I think seniority helps uh, because I spend less time now making diagnoses because I'm better at it. So that leaves more time in the consultation for that really important rapport and communication aspect. Um, you do as a clinician, if you pay enough attention, get a sense of who needs more and who needs less. Uh, some patients do come in with a very um, confident uh, sort of approach. You know, they understand what's going on. They may be quite health literate. They may have already done some research or seen someone else who's explained part of the problem to them. And they see it in a much more transactional way. You know, they come in and they say, I've got carpal tunnel. You're going to fix my carpal tunnel. I've heard you good. Let's just get on and do it. And that's fine. And those patients actually don't want long conversations or for you to try and be their friend. Uh, they they want to just get in and get out because they're busy and they're going somewhere else. Whereas there are other patients that come with deeper uncertainties or more complex issues um, that, that require a lot more time. But of course, when we make appointments, you know, every patient is booked into an X minute slot because we can't tell that from the two sentence referral that the GP has sent through. 
And so sometimes I run really late and sometimes I run early and it's my days are a bit messy like they are for most clinicians. Uh, and even though it's not a patient's responsibility to um, to fix some of these problems, the one thing that patients can do in those interactions is to be patient with their clinicians because we are trying. Part of that is to see the human behind their position, behind the title. You touch on a little bit in the book mm. on just that sense of burnout in the medical field, that sense of being pulled in a million different directions, being time poor, mm. the impact and pressure on relationships. Um, no doubt there mm. are other kind of wears and tears in that role that mm. is a really important mm. role. Again, I'd love to come back to to you mm. personally. Are there, yeah. there key non-negotiables that you have in order to manage your own yeah. energy? Yeah, it's interesting. Burnout is has become very much a catchphrase and we we talk about it all of the time, but only very rarely do I ever see it defined as this is what burnout actually is. And it has multiple phases and it has behaviours and attitudes that are associated with those phases. So that was something that I actually did quite a lot of research on and uh, try to incorporate specifically into Emma's but also Andy's character arc in terms of how their behaviour changes, how um, their thinking changes as they proceed through those stages of burnout. Uh, and that was really illuminating for me, looking back upon my own episodes of burnout over the various years that have gone past and also to serve as a warning now if I'm, you know, heading down that pathway. Um, the single thing that is most useful for burnout is actually rest. Um, other things feature into it as well, such as, you know, things like moral injury, which is where you're, you're required to act in a way that doesn't fit with your morals and values or um, trauma from having to assimilate. So working in uh, with people or workplaces that are not like you and having to change yourself to fit into that environment, they certainly come into burnout as well. But ultimately, the solution to burnout is rest. And so that is my non-negotiable. Um, I really like to schedule holidays, preferably where my mobile phone doesn't work. Um, and I have colleagues who cover me, so my patients are safe. Um, I really need sleep. Uh, I don't do well if I'm tired and particularly a couple of busy weeks with not enough sleep and that starts to become a problem. Um, and so those are the things that I've learned to become quite protective about. It's almost a frustrating response that rest is <laughs> is the thing, and yet uh, you know, like I want that pill, I want that quick, <laughs> I want the quick fix, and yet it is the submission to that that becomes really yeah. important. Yeah, and I think um, oh, I was just going to say I think we need to be really aware of where that pressure is coming from to try and recover quickly. Is that an expectation we're setting on ourselves? Uh, to be forever busy and forever productive or is that an expectation that's being placed on us by the people around us, whether that's a workplace or colleagues or friends or family. Um, I, I think it is in a, in a very capitalist society where 
productivity rules and busyness is worn as a badge of honour. I think that's something that we all need to be careful about. Do you remember what those phases of burnout are? Mm. So the yeah, so the first phase um, entering into a new profession uh, is a bit of a honeymoon phase where people are very enthusiastic. Um, everything is brilliant. Everything is wonderful. Very high levels of commitment to what's going on. Um, and then the second phase is more one of fatigue, so developing tiredness and exhaustion. The third phase can uh, be sort of a, almost a withdrawal, so a, an increasing irritability with the world, a loss of hobbies, a loss of interests, um, not wanting to engage with friends and family. And then the final stages of burnout is a, a persistent feeling of distress and not being able to cope. Such a great way to kind of think about where you might be sitting at fatigue. And I imagine if we can put inject a bit of rest mm. at that phase or stage, what it might be able to do to help. Mm. One of the other titles that you have is as an advocate uh, I know and I've heard you describe that you do a lot around gender equity, health equity, but also work in the refugee advocacy space. Mm. And I understand, let me know if I'm wrong, that you're involved mm. in the, the getting kids of Nauru advocacy mm. conversation. Advocacy is often about mm. kind of really shining mm. a light or highlighting or telling the stories of an issue, as well as being able to create really actionable mm. things. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about what drives the advocacy and how do you help people who go, sounds good, but just don't know what to do, trying yeah. to find those actionable tasks? Yeah. Um, advocacy broadly I think is what clinicians in particular do every single day. Uh, I mean we often talk about advocacy as really big picture issues, but you know, every time I'm trying to get a patient a bed um, and, you know, having a grumble at our bed manager or every time I'm trying to get someone access to an operating theatre, you know, that's that's advocacy. And, and we all do it for ourselves regardless of our role. Um, and we often do it for other people as well. With big picture issues, like all systemic issues, things become more complicated um, because the actors are usually more powerful. The barriers are often quite complex um, and potentially insurmountable. A couple of the principles that I've learned about advocacy that I hold very dear are, firstly, you have to be very careful about advocating on behalf of other people. Um, it's a slightly fraught thing to do because as outsiders without lived experience, we may end up advocating in ways that they don't approve of, that they never asked for, um, and that are not necessarily helpful. Uh, and the other thing is it can remove people's own agency to advocate for themselves. So I think whether it's a single person or whether it is a group of people, um, we have to be quite careful in in how we go about starting an advocacy movement. And particularly with the refugee advocacy work that I did, uh, it, was, it wasn't solo. It wasn't something that me and a group of doctors just decided to do. We were very much linked in with the established um, 
sector, uh, which includes uh, doctors, lawyers, um, not-for-profit organisations that had been working in that space for a very, very long time. Uh, and it was very much with the um, involvement of those that, that we were advocating for. Um, the other thing I would say about advocacy broadly is that it is often said to be something that is negative. Uh, we got a lot of criticism from the federal government at the time of of the advocacy being an agenda that we had set. And particularly when we were doing some of that work as doctors, we were really speaking from a place of expertise. And that was something that we were very, very careful about defining and defining quite narrowly. So we weren't we could have said all sorts of things um, about justice and philosophy and freedom and all sorts of principles that we all hold dear, but there were other people to talk about those things. There were lawyers to talk about legal issues. There were the refugees themselves and their own advocates to talk about justice. So we were really there to talk about the medical issues and the medical conditions, uh, and we sat very narrowly in that space um, because that's where we were most effective. Knowing the thing that's important and and a couple of times and I, th- and I think it's a really important thread where you've talked about being able to define and get really clear mm. on on the area that you're mm. kind of playing with. Interesting that you said earlier and I can't remember the term but someone described almost the advocacy from the the novel that you've written the registrar and and the story that you share it uh, a novel of social protest a novel of social protest such a great uh, phrase what what has been yeah. some of the feedback that you've received about the book since it's been out um I'm mindful of the fact that the people who offer feedback are usually the ones who have something nice to say and the people who don't probably haven't said anything. Um, So when I say overwhelmingly the feedback has been very positive, uh, take it with that grain of salt. Um, But it, I do think that because it's not a memoir, because I'm not poking a finger at any single individual uh, the feedback from the medical community has actually been very positive uh, because what I'm taking aim at is the system more broadly. I've had some lovely messages from nurses because often they are portrayed in medical film and literature in uh, not necessarily the best light. Often they're either you know, the matron bully or their sex objects or they're just almost incidental. And, you know, some of my my favourite colleagues have been nurses and some of my saviours have been nurses. And so it was very important to me to portray them accurately as the, the important part of the health system that they are. Um, and I've had, and, and, you know, I did speak to a lot of friends who have chronic conditions in the writing of the novel, uh, and I have spoken to a few patients since it was published as well. Um, and I think it's nice for people to feel as if they are not alone in the challenges that they may have faced um, within a hospital system. And that was certainly one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing it is 
knowledge is power. And even if you aren't a healthcare worker, um, most of us will interact with the health system at some point. And so if you can show what goes on, then maybe that'll help people a little bit when they are in that situation. The, the mirror up to, to the experience that I've, I've felt, that I've seen, that sounds like it's a really um, key thing. Uh, as much as you say, take it with a grain of salt, I do think if people don't like things, they do say it as well. So <laughs> it's highly likely that, um, that you can take the positives in that, that. And that sense of knowledge is power. I had the great opportunity only recently to connect with an Indigenous leader and he shared something that really resonated with me around that knowledge is power where he said it's not just power but it's responsibility and when we know something when we see a different story yes then we do have it puts us at this kind of cross path to to make a decision about what's mm. our sense of responsibility that we do that with that in mind what what do you mm. hope that this story will spark in those who might read it. And it's possible that it might be anger and frustration or it might be something else. What do you hope it sparks? Um, to be honest, I I think people will make of it what they will. Um, my goal was storytelling. It was simply to say these are the sorts of things that happen in an Australian hospital at this point in time and there are adventures and there are misadventures. There are highs, there are lows. Um, some of my readers, what they've really taken out of it is the sense of friendship and camaraderie. And that's true. I mean, we've talked, you know, you and I about a lot of issues, but I love my job. And there were aspects of my training that I loved. And one of the best parts of being a registrar was being ensconced within a hospital with all of your friends around you. And so for some people, they didn't see the issues. It was just a beautiful reminder of that friendship that they had experienced at that point in time. Um, whereas for others, you know, other darker moments have resonated and brought back memories. So I think I don't really have an expectation. I mean, I, I have no delusion that it will change the world or it will make the health system better. You know, I wrote it as much to entertain as as any sort of moral virtue. Um, but I think people will make of it what they will. And particularly for those uh, who aren't aware of some of those experiences, I hope it makes them think and maybe try and learn a little bit more about them. And I think, you know, just adding to the voice and the story of an aspect that we haven't, we don't often hear from, uh, gives permission for others to start to share those stories as well in their own way and in their own mm. manner. As a storyteller, as someone who's captivated by stories, what are the stories that are captivating you now in terms of what do you think's next in, in the things that are capturing you? Oh, that is a very complicated question um, from a current events point of view I'm very interested to see where the world goes in the next couple of years we've obviously been through this huge collective uh, challenge at a global level and different countries different people are still very much in different places in that journey uh, and then there is the overlay of the 
the financial challenges that a lot of people have faced and will continue to face as the economy changes in response to that. Um, underlying all of that, one of the themes, I guess, of my my interests is about inequity. And so moving forwards, I mean, all of these challenging situations always affect people unequally. And so it will be the poor, it will be um, the global south, it will be, you know, places that places and people that face disadvantage uh, that will find um, the most find themselves in the most challenging circumstances over the next couple of years. And I do hope that we hear their stories because I think facts and statistics are all good and well, but they don't change minds and hearts. I think it is storytelling and narrative that makes the rest of us think that we ought to do something different. Dr. Neela, this story is that you've written is captivating and it's and it's powerful in the invitation to, to sit in someone else's story uh, and through a range of different characters. Um, so thank you and thanks thank you for this conversation. I'd love to wrap up with a final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Mm-hmm. When you hear that term, what does it mean to mm-hmm. you to live a standout life? To me, I think it means living with authenticity. I think that there are a lot of pressures upon us to change ourselves and mould ourselves to external standards and sometimes that's a good thing I'm, I'm by no means saying that our purest truer selves are you know morally good um, you only need to see a child having a tantrum to go and that, that needs to be stamped out um, so you know some some change and some modification is necessary and absolutely essential for society to gel together and and work cooperatively but likewise I think there are lots of negative pressures as well and so for me you know, living a standout life is about finding that kindness, generosity and understanding for fellow people and trying to be as authentic to that as possible despite all of the pressures that might push you to be something else. Knowing who you are and being able to share that story. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.